0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: NDP leader Jagmeet Singh today went out in front of the cameras, called a press conference and told the press and by extension Canadians that he was suspending one of his MPs for harassing behavior. Now, this of course is not the first politician to find himself in difficulty. I will bet any money you want to bet me. This won't be the last politician that we're going to find in difficult spots. However, this story, this particular one is a little more confusing and I think a little more troubling and frankly puzzling than a lot of the other ones we've heard about. Because in this case, now follow along. Again, if you haven't heard this story, try and follow along. It's a little tricky. I'm not trying to be patronizing. It's just a little tricky. A third party sent an email making allegations that this MP, Aaron Weir, had done something. Now, the person who sent the email making the allegations was not the person claiming to be the victim, just aware of some apparent alleged victims. Meanwhile, Weir, who's the MP who's now been suspended, says he has no idea who the complaints were made by, if they were, they're alleged. He doesn't know what they are, doesn't know what they're involving. And even when pressed on this, Jugmeet Singh, the head of the NDP, was asked about the allegations and he said because they didn't come from the alleged victim it was difficult to actually be clear on what exactly happened and he in fact he said we're not clear on what this is and yet he was he suspended his subservient so essentially what we have is a boss suspending an employee for some unclear behavior done against someone that we don't know who they are at a time we're unsure of and it got me thinking today when I heard this. Is this really how we do things now? I mean, I understand where we are in society. I understand social media and everything that's going on. But is this really the new reality? Well, joining me to try and explain some of this from a legal perspective as well as other things, John Pincus is an employment lawyer with Sanfiru Tumarkin. And, John, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Am I being... Oversensitive here or does this seem like a bit of a massive overshoot by Mr. Singh to jump to it seems like to jump to some kind of conclusions for something even he doesn't seem to know what it is
2: I can definitely understand that reaction, uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of other, others are in the same, having sort of the same reaction. Can this happen to me? This, you know, this seems quite extreme. And I guess the one thing that I would say is, it's, well, it's not really a conclusion, right? And, and I'm sure Jagmeet Singh would say that he's not jumping to conclusions. They just want an opportunity to look at it, and for whatever reason, they feel that it's better if they allow, they're allowed to investigate it. Uh, while, uh, Mr. Mr. Weir is not, um, not performing his duties as MP. So for whatever reason, they felt that that's just going to help the investigation. So they're not, uh, it's not necessarily to punish him per se, but it's just to say, uh, this is how we feel, uh, we should do the investigation. And if the investigation turns out that it's, uh, that it's, you know, not, not true and not substantiated, then that person's going to be back to back to work as usual.
1: But to come out and have a press conference announcing that he's being suspended and basically publicly identify the guy and say whatever was said, I think most people are going to leap to a conclusion that this guy is like everybody else that we've heard of. With all the names, we're in a time when you get your name mentioned in a situation like this, people leap to conclusions about what kind of things you may have done. I. It struck me, John, that that this seems kind of backwards. Maybe the investigation should have been done or the suspension done quietly or something so you don't ruin this guy in the public eye before you find out if anything even happened.
2: Yeah, politics is kind of a a strange beast right now. And and public organizations in general, uh, where I think they feel that they have a sort of a duty to the public to let them know exactly what's going on and to be... Maybe even to a fault, transparent in every single thing that they do. And no one wants to end up like, you know, Michigan or, or Penn University and find out that they were actually allowing someone to do something terrible. Uh, not that I think anything like that's even being alleged here, but just, just to use those as extreme sure, examples, sure. right? So now these organizations, and there's all sorts of stories in the news about, uh, places like MSU who are now being accused of allowing people to continue to operate while they had allegations that that um, some very serious misconduct was going on.
1: Right, and for and, those, just for the two people that don't know what you're talking about with that, that's the Michigan State University with the gymnastics doctor Nassim, yes, who was just convicted Nassir, pardon me, who was just convicted on, I don't know, 150, 200 counts of sexual assault. So yes, and yeah. they're now being accused of, you're right, turning their back or letting this go on under their noses.
2: Yeah, and and that could be something Extremely opposite to what's going on here, right? So th- this could be extremely trivial. We don't really know what it is. But the reason why I bring that example up is because before people know the extent of what's going on and the truth and validity of what's going on, nobody wants to be Michigan State University. No one wants to be, uh, or, or for example, CBC. No one wants to be the 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 organization who has allowed this to go on, not investigated, and not been transparent about it. And so we we are getting reactions that you know are arguably maybe. May a little bit overkill. But I, I don't think you're going to convince any organizations to, to just sort of let it, um, you know, let it go on behind the scenes or, or uh, allow an investigation to happen while that person is still working, risking that this kind of behavior, if it's true, is still going on. And so I, I think it's done out of fear. And some of that fear is uh, well-founded. And some of it maybe is an over, over-precaution. over But I think you're going to see this continue.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing
1: our conversation here on The Scott Radley Show with John Pincus, an employment lawyer with Samfiru Tumarkin, about the situation that happened today with Jugmeet Singh and the NDP suspending an MP for something. We don't know what, apparently he doesn't know what, but something alleged was alleged to have happened. And John, I think you're absolutely right. I think that clearly politics is a different world and a different game, and you can't take a chance if you're a leader. At least the perception is you can't, that something bad could have happened under your nose and you let it go. But let's take this into the private sector or even the public sector somewhere, into your office. If something happened in a person's office and someone said something happened to someone but the boss gets this note, won't provide details, tells you that someone has said something but doesn't want to tell you what it is so you can't defend yourself and then suspends you. Would Semfiru Tumarkin not just destroy that boss in court? Would you not win that case every single time?
2: Well, if that person's put on an unpaid suspension, then that's definitely going to be a termination. We'd have no problem with that one. Uh, so anyone who's put on a termination or who's put on a suspension without pay that is almost every single time going to be a constructive dismissal uh, which means that that person can basically leave that employer and get their severance pay uh, if they're put on a paid suspension particularly if there's a policy that allows for paid suspensions in the in the course of, of investigations and perhaps even if there isn't uh... that's a different story uh, an employee can be put on suspension and often that that's that's the right course of action uh, while there is an investigation going on, as long as that person is given a reason, so they can't just be put on paid suspension and said, "Look, we can't tell you why, but we have to put you on a paid suspension." That's going to be a problem, uh, and the Supreme Court's actually talked about that a few years ago. But if there's a reason provided, uh, and there's an investigation, as long as that investigation moves swiftly, and your and that person is given an opportunity to respond and be heard then that that's often actually good practice when a uh, in, when a complaint is made uh, with respect to a poison work environment whether that's from uh, the victim or a third party it can be from either
1: i guess the tricky part for me is not the idea that somebody might be suspended because of what you just said Th- that that to me is less the issue if there is a complaint against the person you're correct you you want to do the right thing and you want to look after this i guess with this story and with that one where I would have the issue is if you went public, if your boss then not only suspended you, but walked out into the middle of the office and says there's been a serious allegation against so-and-so, he has been suspended. It, it seems to me that if you, if you announce it, you are kind of destroying the person rather than doing it in a, in a way that can make the process go through and make the process happen. But you don't have to necessarily, until you know what these things are, ruin the guy's reputation or the woman's reputation.
2: Right. Well, I think I probably speak for a lot of lawyers when, uh, you know, I, the, where we wish that the public at large would pay closer attention to the meaning of the word allegation, right? But I, th- I think you're right, in the reality is that a lot of people tend to ignore that word. And once there's an allegation, it almost becomes, okay, this is what that person's done, even though there's that, that, that may be something that's still being investigated.
1: Especially in the atmosphere we're in right now. Yeah,
2: especially in the atmosphere that we're in right now. But. You know, it, it's hard to fault a, a company if if there's a public figure um, and that person, and there, there's some kind of complaint that's made against that person and there's an investigation, um, and they want to, they're, they're going to have to explain why that person's not there. Um, I don't really know if that person's necessarily going to have any recourse there. I mean, if someone's made deliberately malicious. Uh, allegations against them and that has caused them to suffer uh, financially or from a career perspective then they may they may have a, a remedy against that individual But as far as the employer just going out there and explaining, yes, there's an allegation We're we're doing an investigation, I don't think that's going to stop. And I don't think there's anything you can do uh, except clear your name when the time comes. As long as you're given an opportunity to do that, then I don't think there's going to be any recourse against the employer, per se.
1: What would happen if, and I don't know if this would happen, but what would happen if somewhere along the way an allegation like this was then made against the boss? once the boss has set the bar and said this you have to step aside and be suspended while the investigation was going on would the boss have to do the exact same thing if an allegation was made against him now that you've as as i say set that barometer set that bar
2: yeah if an an allegation is made against a boss i mean the first thing that usually needs to be done uh, if it's against a boss or someone in an executive role is to bring in a third party those are the circumstances where it's almost always going to be a statutory necessity uh, to bring in a third party because there's no one who can really be an unbiased investigator of at the company of the boss or someone in some kind of senior corporate role. So that's the first thing that happens is that an independent investigator needs to be brought in. And as a part of that process, uh, the company may decide to suspend to, uh, that person. And it, it is good practice to have consistency across the board, not just for lower level employees, but to show that Uh, higher level employees are going to uh, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk as well.
1: Yeah, uh, this whole thing, and the reason I had you on today, and the reason I wanted to have you on is because I, I think that most people, I certainly fall into this category, I know you do, I think most people, if someone has done something inappropriate, hundred percent, absolutely wholeheartedly believe they should be out of that position. They should be responsible for their behavior and whatever, go on from there. That, that is something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And I think most people listening do it, this whole thing though today, especially when the allegations aren't known, when the alleged victim isn't known, when the time frame isn't known, there's not much that's actually known here. It just, to me, you start getting into some pretty dicey areas
2: yeah well they're going to have to move swiftly on this one one thing that they can't that that and again, it's a little bit different in the political sphere, but at least speaking from my experience in the pri- in the private sphere, one thing that organizations can't do is to have an investigation, have someone suspended, and then just sit on it and then just say, okay, well maybe we'll investigate it next week or we'll get some witnesses together. As an employer, you really need to move quickly. If you're going to do something, especially if you're going to suspend someone and have them not working, uh, you know, even even you're, if you're paying that person, which obviously you should be. Um, you really have to move quickly because that person has a right to not have their position and the the, the investigation um, up in the air, and they have a right to respond and and tell their side of the story and and know exactly what's being alleged against them. And if it's too vague to substantiate, then that that investigation has to come to a proper closure.
1: John Pincus, an employment lawyer with some fear to mark, and really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Anytime. (laughs)
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: 50 years ago today, many of us were not alive then, or barely alive, but 50 years ago today, in the middle of the Vietnam War, actually near the end of the Vietnam War, a photo was taken that really changed history. It happens sometimes. The shot, now you've seen this picture before, I know you've seen the picture, rather difficult for me to show you on the radio, but you can imagine it. It was by Associated Press photographer Eddie Adams, and it was of a South Korean general with his arm extended and a gun in his hand, executing a Viet Cong soldier by shooting him in the head. The picture was taken 50 years ago today. That picture won the Pulitzer Prize, but more than that, it affected public opinion back in the States and around the world significantly and was a major player in swaying public support away from the war many people who were sitting on the fence at this point about whether they supported the war or didn't, this picture helped to turn them away from that. It wasn't a story that did this. It wasn't a news clip that did this. It was a photo that did it. The question I had though, when I read this story today about this photo in the background, how could a single image, one split second in time be so powerful? We know they are. We know other pictures have done the same thing, but how can one split second be so visceral that it could have that kind of impact? Well, Barry Gray is a photojournalist at the Hamilton Spectator. He has won a National Newspaper Award for his work. He's won enough Ontario Newspaper Awards that he's probably lost count at this point of how many that is. Uh, Barry, thanks for doing this tonight.
3: Oh, you're quite welcome, Scott.
1: So, what is your answer to that question? You've done this for a long time. Why is it that one split second, if you catch it at the exact right moment, why can it be so powerful?
3: Geez, if we uh, if we uh, knew the answer to that, and we could just bottle it as a <laughs> photojournalist, you know, we'd be we'd be set, right? I, you know, it, it, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned that you know it wasn't a story; it was a picture. If you think about. Um, think about a story and, and I mean, it and a story can move you and it can leave you with a, with a new impression of something, but it takes you a long time to, uh, to digest the information, to read the story, you know, and if you saw a movie or a video clip, whereas when you look at a still picture, a single image, there's just, there's just something that happens. There's an immediacy to that. And it just, I don't know. It just, it gets seared into your brain somehow. And, and depending upon you know, if it if it checks off the right things on the list that make it a great picture, then it just, it, like I said, it just gets stuck in your head and it just it just lives there.
1: It, I mean, it's true. There is unique power in a photo, which I guess is why newspapers even today still build their front page almost every day around their best photo. What's our what's the best photo? That's going to be the one on the front page because we think that that's going to be the thing that gets people's attention or catches an eye or gets them thinking. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: I wonder how much of this comes from the fact that, with no that, that that because it's caught in a moment of time, there's no preamble to a photo, there's no epilogue to a photo. So your a photo more than anything, and maybe I'm getting way too deep here, but allows your imagination to run wild. You can kind of build your own narrative of what happened to lead to that picture that caused that picture.
3: Yeah, I, I suppose I suppose that's true. Yeah, I don't know if you want to. Uh... Drill down that, that deeply into it. I mean, there's a number of things that go on in those kind of iconic pictures, right? I mean, it's, it's, for those ones that are really successful, um, I, look at it this way every picture you take, I mean, if you take your iPhone out and you take a picture of your kids this morning, you know, before they go to school, you're capturing a moment in time, but it's not a decisive moment in time. Whereas, you know, you think about Eddie Adams' picture. And it was the moment when the general pulled the trigger I mean it was a decisive moment in time and then it also against the backdrop of a very large event if you and if you think about those kind of iconic pictures quite often yeah they're in the backdrop uh, of a very large event um, and it's clarity
1: about, it's clarity right because there yeah. are other there is a story behind this and people can go and read it. There yeah. is a story behind the Viet Cong soldier who was killed and the general who did the killing that it's somewhat, if it's true, complicates the story behind this. The good guy is maybe not as clear and the bad guy is maybe not as clear. But in this one moment, you can make a very clear distinction on who is who.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very true, because I, I believe the story had said that uh, the guy that got shot had actually killed some members of the general's family you know yeah so, right in so front of him
1: like murdered justice. them in front of him
3: yeah, yeah so there was some justification there um but i mean you think about uh, there were you know literally thousands of great pictures taken during the vietnam war and i mean you really think of two uh, most people are familiar with this picture and then they're also familiar with the picture um of the young girl running naked through the streets that had napalm on her i think most people if they saw that picture they would go oh yeah i remember that one right and again it's just i think it it shocks people it it shocked them i mean you talked about how it started to change uh the feeling in the war and i think people i mean you know war is messy and it's bloody and it's it's bad on on multiple different levels but until you start to see those images then suddenly it's it's not just something that's over there and it's out of sight, out of mind. Suddenly this is was on people's front pages and they kind of looked and went, Okay, wait a minute here, what's what's going on? You
1: know Yeah, very visceral. Would it do you believe that today if you were sent over to a war right now and you were shooting a war and you found that picture or something similar, would it be used today? Uh, that's a good question.
3: Uh, I I guess as a photojournalist, you'd like to believe it would be used. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think a lot of uh, some outlets and some papers and things would use it. And I think some would shy away from
1: using it. We, yeah, we do. I, I think we do have a different sensibility than we did 50 years ago.
3: Yeah, and, and I mean, frankly, there may have been papers back in the day. I'm not sure that shied away from using that then as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it would. I think it would go both ways. Some would use it, and some
0: wouldn't. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML.
1: Talking about photojournalism specifically, one picture that was taken in the late stages of that war. By a guy named Eddie Adams that really changed things. We're talking about the power of photojournalism. It was the photo of the general shooting the Viet Cong soldier in the head that was taken 50 years ago today? Barry, let me go back to just what we were talking about before the break about whether pa- places would use that picture today, because we've we're, we're everyone is acknowledging when they're writing about this today that that was a moment that changed things that really affected the war. I don't know that it would get used today. I don't know that there are a lot of places that would have the guts to use a picture of a murder, basically an assassination in their pages or even on their website right now.
3: Yeah, I guess I guess the first problem is, would you even have access to get a picture like that now? Because most, um, most uh, photojournalists that are over in those situations now are... are much more tightly controlled let's say than they were back in uh, back in the day back during the Vietnam War. Um, there, there's always a theory that, that sort of says that um, uh, people, uh, readers are more they're more upset or they're more squeamish about things like that the closer they are to home. So in other words, if that picture happened, you know, in the forecourt of City Hall in Hamilton, would it get used? Virtually 100% no, right? If it happens, the farther away from where you live, um, you know, which is why lots of times we tend to see pictures in the newspaper of, you know, major flooding or things that happen in Asia or the Philippines or something, because I think to a lot of readers, they're so far away that they're, they, you develop this different mindset about it, that it's, it's they, they can't sort of relate it's you know it's it's a different it's a different feeling than something that happens right in your backyard
1: well the last one I can think of and maybe you can think of it one much closer but the last one I can think of that sort of falls into this category of being catch your breath photo that actually got run and I'm forgetting the photographer's name now but it was the one of the American soldier being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu uh Toronto star photographer
3: Yeah, it was uh, Paul Watson.
1: Paul Watson. And that was the last time I can remember one that ran that I thought, I'm kind of surprised they ran that picture. I don't know if there's been one since.
3: Um, Yeah, that was, when was that? Back in the early 2000s or was it in the
1: 90s? Probably 20 years now.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was funny because uh, this afternoon I was just, uh, I was flipping through, um, some iconic images over the years, right? And and one of the ones that, that struck me that I'd kind of forgotten about was, and you think about probably the largest uh, thing that's happened on North American soil in, in our generation, of course, is nine eleven. And And you think about there were, again, hundreds of really great, powerful, moving pictures came out of that, but it was the shot of, uh, a lone man, the who jumped out of the building and he was falling head first just past rows and rows and rows of windows. And again, I hadn't seen that picture in a while and it almost took my breath away, even again today, just mm-hmm. seeing it. And that picture did get used. It did. And, and you know exactly what's happening in that picture and it, it shocks you, but it told a great story, and and it did get used a lot.
1: Yeah, The Chef. I forgot about that one. You're absolutely right. That is the, uh, well, you know, Time Magazine, you talk about pictures that had an impact. Time Magazine some time ago ran a spread of the 100 most influential, influential photos of all time. I don't know if that word could be used as impactful or whatever. Yeah. But uh, what really shocked me about it was of the 100, the vast majority were wars, were Sadness or something difficult. There weren't a lot of peppy, upbeat, happy photos there, and I'm wondering: it, it, does sadness, does difficult circumstances make for more striking photos? I don't know if that's the case, but it sure seemed that way. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, huh, yeah, that's I, that's a hard question to answer. I, I don't know if you have a picture, I suppose that has a moment of of pure joy and you're able to capture that on the the people's faces or whatever um you know it will be it will make for a striking image but yeah it's it's those pictures of horrific things that people don't typically have to face you know that they're suddenly confronted with and and they kind of stick with them you know and and some of them again another picture that, that comes to mind a really famous picture um you remember the one from uh, Tiananmen Square of the row of tanks lined up and the lone individual standing in front of the tanks, with of course. Yep. I mean, you know, and that picture that that picture is not um, it's not violent, it's not gruesome, but it, it sure tells a story, right? And that's kind of what it's all about.
1: I've got twenty seconds here. Uh, we all we often ask musicians what song they wish they had written. If they could have been one and they didn't write it, but they know a song and they go, man, I wish that was mine. As a photographer, of all the pictures you've seen, it is there one that stands out that you say, man, I wish that was my picture? I wish I had taken that.
3: Uh, Again, that's a hard question because I've seen... you know, hundreds and thousands of pictures in my uh, in my time. I suppose I could say the shot of Neil Armstrong on the moon. So be,
0: <laughs> maybe if
3: I was in place of Buzz Aldrin up there, that would <laughs> that would have been kind of fun, I guess. Yeah, tough one. Uh, tough no, one I, to get from here. You need a question, buddy.
1: you need a long angle lens, long lens to get that one if you're back home.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's assuming it happened. and It wasn't fake, right?
1: Of course, it wasn't in Sault Ste. Okay. Marie. Uh, Barry Gray, from, photojournalist with the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for doing this tonight, Barry. Appreciate it. No problem, Many Thanks, Scott. Uh, go and read, by the way, the story. The guy's name again, Eddie Adams. Eddie Adam, singular. Uh, go and read. There's tons of stories about this photo. Uh, it'll remind you of the photo, but it'll also tell some of the story behind it and some of the impact it had. It's a tremendous story behind the story that you can read about
0: you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml
1: if you're on the internet at all ever looking at news stories or whatever else you know that there are occasionally some goofy studies that are done stuff that you you know there's some really good studies there's good science out there there's really interesting things that you look at and you say hmm that's that's that makes some sense. That's very interesting. I think I can buy into that, whatever else. But there's also some stuff that I just don't even know where they come up with these things. And I came across today now a study that, while I support it, because I love the conclusions, <laughs> leads me to believe this may be the stupidest study done in a long, long time. And it's not, well, I shouldn't even say that, because there are some studies that are done on such stupid things it's remarkable they can get a grant to do it. But nonetheless, let me tell you about this study, which again, the conclusions I appreciate and I subscribe to wholeheartedly. I'm sure Ben does too. I'll explain why in a minute. And Luke, who was on that side of the glass before Ben during the Scott Thompson show, most everybody actually around this station probably subscribes to this, at least a lot of us. The secret to a happy marriage... Ben, what do you think? Would, what do you think, according to a study, what would be the secret to a happy marriage? Give me, give me two or three things. What do you think they'd be? Uh, probably trust and honesty. Trust and honesty. Good answers. Uh, not not right, but what are but good answers? What else? What could you think would be a secret to a happy marriage? I'd say just being genuine in general. Being genuine. I love that answer. Wrong again. What else? Give me one more. I'm, I'm pressing you here. I know you're not married, so this is a tough one, but what are the secrets? What would be a secret to a great marriage? Pick a good wife. See, now there again, first of all, I'm proud of you. As a non-married guy, you seem to have this nailed down pretty good. Trust and honesty, being genuine, find a good wife. See, you're, you're, you've placed yourself in a good position. You understand, but all of those are wrong just telling you, according to this study anyway, all of those are wrong. You are a fool for believing such silliness that honesty and trust and being genuine and having a good wife would be the secret to a happy marriage. No, 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 no. The secret to a happy marriage, according to this study out of Philadelphia, women make sure your husband is taller than you. That is the secret. I'm not making this up. This is a scientific study that was done that says women who have taller husbands have happier marriages. And it doesn't stop there. The bigger the gap in height between a wife and a husband, the happier your marriage will be. So says this study. 8,000 participants were polled in this. And after all the study about what would bring together a happy life and a happy marriage, they whittled it down <laughs> to find a tall guy. Now, as I say, as someone who is somewhere between six foot four and six foot five, depending on what shoes I'm wearing and what type of day, what time of day it is, I I appreciate this. I think this is a deeply insightful study. And Ben is a tall guy, and as I say, Luke is I don't know seven foot eight or something. I don't know he's huge. So we're all for this. I'm sure. If you find a guy with many inches or centimeters, we're in Canada, between you. So if you are, let's say you are a five foot two woman, it's not a crazy height, and you could find yourself a seven foot six guy, you will, according to this science, have the happiest life anyone has ever had, ever on the face of the earth, ever. That is the secret. I spent a good chunk of the afternoon today trying, because they don't actually include in the recap of this, they don't include what the reason for this would be. So I've been spending a good chunk of the afternoon trying to figure out why this would be so impactful, and I'm still stumped. I'd love to hear from you. Radley, send me an email, radley at 900chml.com. If you have a terrific theory, I mean, it doesn't have to be right, because This is a ridiculous, apparently, study anyway. But what would be your theory for why having a much taller husband, according to science, and here's the thing, right? It's a study. It is science. Therefore, it must be true. All you have to do is say, it's science. And that means it is absolutely without question true. So this is science. Now, there's one, by the way, before we wrap up, with this ridiculous study. Although, again, I plan to take this information home to my wife this evening and let her know that she lucked out by having a tall husband. Her life, science would indicate, must be terrific. But anyway, there is one caveat, there is one catch to this, which throws this science into complete craziness. Height between the husband and the wife, which makes for a happy marriage, so says science, only works for the first 18 years of marriage. After 18 years of marriage, the whole height thing falls apart and it means nothing anymore. So if you can somehow survive the first 18 years with your tall husband, well, no. And if you've got 18 years, you've only, you've had your best 18 years. The rest is going to be... But if you have a short husband, all you got to do is get through 18 years and then you don't have to worry about it anymore because science says that magic has gone away. What do you think, Ben? Good science? Are you going to follow this one? Are you going to use this to your advantage now? Well, considering that there's a girl I know that's my height. I don't know. Yeah, I would get rid of her fast because that'll be a miserable first 18 years. Your next 18 will be terrific, but the first 18 are going to stink if you go with her. She's a very tall girl. It's great, isn't it? She's never going to have a happy marriage, apparently, unless she finds Shaquille O'Neal on the rebound. Pardon the pun. I'd be happy with Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: On Sunday, as you know, Tom Brady, 40 years old, 40-year-old quarterback now of the New England Patriots, is going to be probably winning, I would guess, his sixth Super Bowl. He's already won more than anyone else. He's already considered the best player to ever play the game. But now, in the last couple years, he has become an avowed health and nutrition guru. It's not enough for him simply to be the best at football. He's now a health guru. He believes... According to a book that he's put out, he believes his ability to remain at the top of his game and in peak physical condition for so long has nothing to do with genetics, has nothing to do with being able to hire any trainer he wants in the world because he makes so much money, uh, has nothing to do with being married to a supermodel. I don't know what their height difference is to know if they're really happy, but he's married to a supermodel, so that may help. Uh, But the result, he says, none of that. The result is the TB12 method. Tom Brady and then his uniform number. He is 12. He calls the TB12 method. What it is, it's all about your muscles being pliable. You want soft muscles, not dense muscles. You don't create muscle. You don't want to create muscle by lifting weights. You want to create pliable muscle by massage and diet and on and on and on. Is any of this true? I have no idea. But Dr. Stuart Phillips is a McMaster kinesiology professor. He's director of the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research. He is an expert in muscle physiology, but I don't know if he has bought a copy of the TB12 book and is following the TB12 method towards better health and fitness. Dr. Phillips, are you? Um, well, well, I'd be honest in saying, I, I do have a copy of the book. Uh, I have read it, and, um,
4: but I'm not following it. So um, I, I'm, not, I'm not a believer, but I do think Tom Grady is a great quarterback.
1: <laughs> You're very politically astute. That's the way to get around that one. Uh, yeah. here's, here's what I don't get from this story, because I've never heard of this before. What exactly is muscle pliability?
4: Uh, well i 'm not exactly sure what it means um, to be honest, and I suppose that 's where the confusion starts. but I think what pliable i mean what he 's trying to say if you read between the lines is that his muscles can stretch, and i don 't think any of us would deny that the ability to sort of have a stretchable muscle uh, isn 't a, a, a bad thing, but the, the soft angle that he adopts is that 's really bizarre to me because that 's exactly the last thing. That
1: an athlete would need. Explain why? Well, I mean, because because you want to be stronger,
4: right? Well, I mean, what we know for a fact is that when you lift weights and you get a bit stronger, um, and Tom Brady lifts weights. Now, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, he might not lift big heavy weights that he sees other players lifting, but he uses uh, re- elastic resistant bands, and that's a resistive force. And it, so it's like lifting weights, whether he calls it that or not. Um, your muscles actually get harder, um, and that's a protective mechanism. Soft muscles are muscles that have been in the condition of disuse. People, you know, wearing uh, a cast or a brace or have been in a bed rest, their muscles get soft. So I, I can't really understand what it is that he's talking about, to be honest.
1: Much of, now I have not read the whole book. I've I've read some clips of it, and I've heard a lot of people talking about it. But much of what he talks about to get to this point of soft muscles is via his diet. I mean, you do, obviously, you're going to be working out, but you want your diet. And here is. Here's what his chef, how his chef once described Brady's diet. This is a quote. No white sugar, no white flour, no MSG. I'll use raw olive oil, but I never cook with olive oil. I only cook with coconut oil. Fats like canola oil turn into trans fats. I use Himalayan pink salt as the sodium. I never use iodized salt. And what else? No coffee, no caffeine, no fungus, no dairy. Now, on its face, and I'm back to me talking now, not his chef. On its face, is there anything wrong with the diet that he is living by.
4: I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that his uh, ascription of um, his prowess as a quarterback to that type of diet is a little bit of misattribution. But um, anything dietary-wise that is you know, highly specific and cuts out entire food categories always troubles me. So um, the elimination of certain food groups, for example, dairy, is one that uh, I just struggle with. It's a very nutrient dense food, forms uh, a, a good part of people's diets. Um, it's it's just a a little bit of a fad, I think.
1: What about he says don't eat any nightshade foods? I never heard of this before. What is a nightshade food? <laughs>
4: yeah. Uh, well, a nightshade food I mean it, it's part of the nightshade family but I mean he uh, specifically refers in there uh, to things like uh, tomatoes uh, eggplants and um, and foods in that category but it, so that one again it sort of baffles me but um, uh, it, it's also uh, around a lot of things to do with uh, altering blood pH which you know we we know for a, a bona fide medical fact is extremely Extraordinarily difficult to change, and particularly with diet.
1: Well, okay, so the idea when you try to balance, you're trying to, is it healthy to have a fully balanced pH level in your body? Is that uh, what I we're think- shooting for?
4: Well, I think that the main point to make is that uh, no matter what we eat from a dietary perspective, our blood pH stays within a very, very narrow range. And, in fact, it's almost impossible with diet to alter it. So um, I think that discussion ends pretty quickly as soon as it begins because it's just uh, its not possible to change your blood pH if you took our pH um, – Amongst a hundred people, it, you'd find it, w- it was within uh, you know 0.1 pH units. There's no real deviation between
1: people.: So eating bushelfuls of dandelion greens is not going to help you.
4: <laughs> oh, I, I can't say that uh, bushel's full, but I mean, green anything from a vegetable standpoint isn't necessarily bad, but you know sort of squeezing yourself into one category or another, Um, is uh, it's just generally not a good thing from a dietary perspective Um, once again uh, not denying the guy's quarterback skills but his um, scientific basis for his (laughs) diet lacks lacks a little bit
1: there's one other thing that he mentions in here of foods that he tries to get away from and again i don't know that this actually is anything but he wants anti-inflammatory foods now does Do certain foods cause our muscles to inflame?
4: Um, no, I, I don't think that there's any sort of foods that um, cause your muscles to inflame, but there's the idea that diets that are higher in fat and a lot of trans fats and refined sugars, and so I can't hack Tom Brady for avoiding um, refined sugars in that regard, uh, are, are considered to be pro-inflammatory. They induce an inflammatory state, uh, and definitely... You know, that in, in most people would be a bad thing. But the physical condition that, uh, that Tom Brady keeps himself in, I really can't understand why the inflammatory status of his body is a big issue from a dietary perspective. From, See, a, from a long-term health perspective, no issues there. Definitely anti-inflammatory diets that are high in fruits and vegetables, sort of the same advice that we've been giving people for, you know, uh, decades now. Um, it's a good way to eat, but um, I don't think that these foods Uh, are particularly anti-inflammatory, to be honest with you.
1: See, when you talk about eating the high-carb and high-sugar stuff, whenever I've eaten that before, people have always just said, well, that's foods that make you fat. But I like it now better to say, I'm not fat, I'm inflamed. (laughs) (laughs) I simply have an inflamed gut, and so it's not that I'm fat. I I like this. I think Tom Brady's onto something here. Better terminology for those of us who try to get rid of our bellies here. The the issue really, though, doctor, is that out of all of this stuff, Tom Brady is a very well-known, very successful, very famous uh, athlete who has a great audience. And we've seen this with other celebrities as well, that we have people who will look at what he does and say, OK, there's got to be some reason why Tom Brady can do what no one else can do. And if Tom Brady says that it's eating dandelion greens or staying away from salmon and cheese or strawberries, that's got to be the reason.
4: Yeah. yeah. The power of uh, celebrity and um, and I always have a a, a quote that I say is that uh, the power of an anecdote is proportional to the success of the athlete that gives it so Um, I, I don't think it's much, uh, much of a debate anymore. And definitely if the guy wins on Sunday, he's the greatest of all time. And when he says, this is the reason or a reason why I am successful, then people will listen. And and it's just, you know, it's one of those things. It's the power of celebrity endorsement, but it's, uh, from a scientific perspective, that's been my criticism, and if the guy wants to write a book on, uh, you know, the seven-step drop and hitting the guy on a crossing route, I'll, I'll be the first one to buy it. He's an amazing athlete, but I'm not so sure that um, it, the diet is, is a big role. He's got great genetics. He's got great athleticism. He gives a damn. He works with trainers. And, you know, he's got a lot of things dialed in psychologically. The, uh, clearly, the guy's, you know, mentally tough. He's got everything going on. But, you know, the diet, I'm not so sure that that's a big part of it, to be honest with you.
1: So if I follow his, his method exactly to the T, I couldn't do what he does?
4: <laughs> well, I, I doubt whether there are many that could, but uh, there's probably a few out there. But whether they do it because of or in spite of the diet is the key part or his pliable muscles, but that aside, um, you know, he, he, he's the best. So uh, <laughs> it, it's hard to say what makes him the best, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that the diet is, is the big part of it.
1: You've got a couple of minutes left here, and I mean, I, I do want to branch this a little bit because we do hear regularly celebrities giving us health advice, and it doesn't sound like what Tom Brady is saying is going to be terribly harmful to us if we do this, but there have been other celebrities that... Doctors and scientists have said, run for your life from these people because they are offering things that are really potentially harmful. Uh, One whose name keeps coming up is Gwyneth Paltrow. I keep hearing this about some of the ideas that she has. Uh, Jenny McCarthy with her ideas about inoculations and stuff. Why do we listen to celebrities? And seemingly, not only do we listen to them, but some people, the crazier the idea, the more willing we are to believe that there must be something to it.
4: Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting point, and I just spent the past two days out in Edmonton and Calgary giving talks alongside a fellow named Tim Cosfield, who's a professor at the University of Alberta, and he essentially uh, brings up this phenomenon of celebrity scientists, and um, you know the most trustworthy person according to uh, people in the United States around September last year was uh, was Tom Hanks, and. Uh, Number two was Sondra Bullock, and then followed closely by Denzel Washington. And and you had to get all the way down to around sort of 50 before you would trust somebody that might be a scientist or somebody who was uh, in medicine. And uh, really, I think it's just the idea that these people somehow have, you know, ascribed to them a degree of trustworthiness that isn't in line with their their persona, and um, I don't really know why that's the case, but it's a fascination with listening uh, to people like that, and it, it just sort of uh, discredits science, I think, is the biggest um, uh, problem. And it, But as you point out, with Jenny McCarthy and uh, no vaccinations, uh, it places people at public risk. Is that difficult
1: for people like you, though, to overcome when you then turn around and say, no, what that celebrity said is nuts. Don't listen to them. Do people buy that from you or does it take some convincing?
4: Uh, it takes a ton of convincing. I don't have the type of audience that um, a lot of these people do. And I think that the uh, the best example that Professor Coffield gave in his talk was to point out that uh, Katy Perry, for example, takes something like 24 supplements a day. She has 108 million followers and she tweets out, this is what I'm taking. And then the World Health Organization has 4.2 million followers. So, I mean, <laughs> each, on, on that scale, uh, you know, even the WHO can't compete with Katy Perry, and I certainly can't either. So, um, you know, it, social media is where these these battles are being fought and opinions are being changed. Uh, it, it's just not the right venue, and there's no scientific evidence behind a lot of the things that are being said.
1: And that said, as I let you go, how many times – Are you guessing this weekend when we tune in to watch the Super Bowl, will Tom Brady's diet be mentioned? I bet it'll be more than once.
4: I think you're going to hear about it, and uh, I think there'll be a few people that'll sort of laugh skeptically and just say, well, if it works for Tom, and that's the power of the the anecdote with a brilliant athlete. Um, No question, he's got something special, but I don't think the diet's it.
1: Dr. Stuart Phillips from McMaster University's Kinesiology Department uh, and Director of the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise and Health Research. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
4: No no problem. My pleasure.
1: I, uh, I do think that it is probably wise to be somewhat skeptical of an actor, actress, singer, singer, whatever, giving you health advice. <laughs> I, I don't really go to my doctor to ask them how to sing or put together a song. And I probably would be skeptical if my favorite musical artist was telling me how to fix my health, but we do it. This is the amazing thing. I didn't look up today. I should have looked up today. I didn't look it up. How many copies of this book Tom Brady has sold or how many copies of Gwyneth Paltrow's, whatever it is that she's selling this month. There's been a couple things Gwyneth Paltrow has sold on her website that I don't think we're allowed to talk about on the radio. They are so-called health aids for parts of the body. We generally don't refer to on this show, but nonetheless, I'd love to know how many they've sold because it's not like people are saying, oh, you know what? No, no, no. Those people are, they don't know. People are buying them. People believe this stuff. I don't know why. But they do. And oh, you know what? If Oprah told you that eating bushelfuls of dandelion greens were going to help, oh, the world there would be a world shortage in dandelion greens. The good news is if that was the case then in the summertime, my yard might actually be worth something. I could resupply the world's stock of dandelions. I w- maybe I should ask Oprah to do that just to drive up the price of my property. Anyway, I don't. when you watch Tom Brady on Sunday, enjoy his performance, if you're a Patriots fan. Marvel at the fact that he's still able to do this at 40 years old. Admire his fitness. But I don't necessarily know that we should be buying into the idea that anti-inflammatory foods and non, what did he call them? Non-shade? Nightshade. Foods, avoiding them, is the secret to him being a great quarterback. We'll see if he's still doing this at 60. If he's still doing this at 60, I may buy into this whole diet thing. Until then, I'm skeptical.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.